Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest, the brilliant journalist Peggy Orenstein. While she's best known for her groundbreaking work around kids and sex, in her latest book, she turns to knitting, which, as it turns out, is just as radical. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the Thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. Women spent so much time in the ancient world spinning. Like they spent all their time, any spare moment. And spinsters were not a bad, it wasn't bad to be a spinster the way we think of it. Spinsters were you know, respected members of households, single women who didn't have the responsibilities of husbands or children could spend more and make money. And, you know, you think about things like the Vikings marauding around, you know, when they sailed the across the Atlantic and their little hats and everything. But you don't think about the sails. You don't think like, who made those sails? Who made the thread that made all those sails? Who do you think did that? How many years did it take those women to make one? lousy sale you know i mean it took it took like two years to make of, of women's labor to make a sale so the the kind of invisible labor of women and all of that so says peggy orenstein a celebrated journalist who is acclaimed for her insightful analysis of gender sexuality and identity issues she's written several bestsellers about the topic including girls and sex and boys and sex but that's not what we're going to talk about today during covid Peggy took a right turn and an entirely different type of book emerged, one that is actually just as radical. In Unraveling, she explores the depths of her grief and tackles societal issues through the process of making a sweater from scratch, including shearing a sheep and carding and dyeing the wool, ultimately discovering the power of creativity and connection. While sharing her journey of making the sweater, which is actually riveting reading, she also unravels the rich history and culture of spinning and weaving while exposing the sobering reality of fast fashion and its detrimental impact on our environment. This is a book about something that sounds simple yet is actually about everything. 
offering the potential for a genuine shift in how we perceive the world. Okay, let's get to our conversation. I loved your book in a way because it was, it's such, (laughs) I, I mean, I'll read anything that you write, Peggy, you know that. And I have obviously intensely read your work on kids and, and sex and sexuality. And so I was like, oh, this will be a fun romp. And it was a fun romp, but it's like a side door into a massive conversation about everything. Yeah. Right. Who knew? I know. That's what people keep saying to me. I mean, yeah, people say to me, you know, how, like, it doesn't make sense that I went from teenagers and sex to, you know, yarn, but I think it is completely consistent. It's not like I stopped being who I am as a writer or as a person. And that kind of curiosity about looking at the unexamined in everyday life, and particularly as it relates to women and girls, it felt completely consistent to me. It was, you know, it, it it looks at the radical nature of women's work and, you know, which is all about this fiber stuff. It looks at the planet. It looks at our relationship to our daughters and our mothers and aging and all of these things, creativity. It just, it, it felt, you know, like, like it was, it was absolutely of a piece with my other work. It's just a slightly different vessel for it. Yeah. No, I agree. It fits too. You know, there are many really powerful sections in this book. And of course, my podcast is called Pulling the Thread. So I'm right there with you, which is when you go back and you write about this so beautifully, but when you start to understand fabric, weaving, stories, who was it? Like, I didn't, I don't know if you specifically mentioned this. I'm thinking of Mary Beard and sort of the weaving and Penelope's weaving and unweaving and the Odyssey, but also this idea that women taking it right to sexuality would if they claim to have been sexually assaulted or raped right like their tongue like who was it whose tongue was cut out but she wove the whole story of her oh, dina was it dina was that who is it was it it was like i'm I not sure know, but but that's interesting no i didn't i didn't know that because because they're so i mean textile metaphors are so you know woven into our mm-hmm. culture that I, you know, they would have taken over. So I, just, I made this kind of decision like, I'm not going to do the weaving metaphors because I'm not weaving and there's just too many of those. But I do a, a kind of riff on some of the language, the ways that it's in our language. And even, I mean, you can just go on and on, but even when we send those little things on our phones to our friends, those iMessages, what do we call those? We call those texts. And that's mm-hmm. the same root as textile. And when we you know, the little answers, 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 backs and forths, we call those threads. So even when we go into the virtual world, we take this tangible memory of how important fiber and cloth is. You know, I mean, we are, when we're born, the first thing that happens is we are wrapped in cloth, right? Mm -hmm. And when we leave this world, the last thing that happens is we are wrapped in cloth. And in between, we spend a lot of time in cloth, you know, so that like you can, I, I had no idea I mean, every book is a braid, right? And and the part that I knew was that I was going to do this kind of crazy thing of shearing a sheep and and processing fleece and spinning and dyeing yarn and knitting up a sweater. But I didn't know all the other strands of the braid, the multiple strands. And so it was all, and one of them was this idea of like, it turns out you can tell the whole history of the world through 
fiber cloth dyeing. I mean, every it was it it blew me away that how how you I mean I I just I went down so many rabbit holes of fascinating research. It was it was the most fun I had. Yeah, I mean, so take us there, and I love this the idea too that you talk about this as things I learned from, I can't remember the, how you shorten it, but things you learn from your mother, but the way that craft work is typically sort of handed down, but how, what was the genesis of this book? Did you know what you were, we'll just keep going with the weaving threads, but did you know all of the threads that you you were going to pull on? So what happened was I, boys and sex had just come around and I had been, I probably talked to you back then. I had been, you know, going around the country with that. And I was making that transition. It was January. It, it came out in January, 2020. And I was making the transition after a couple months from book tour to more formal speaking events. And I had three events in Los Angeles. I was going to fly down for, and I was on my way to the airport in my car. It was like March 11th or something. And I just thought, I cannot do this. And I turned around and went home and canceled them. And the event coordinators were like, but we're going to have hand sanitizer at the event. It's going to be fine because <laughs> that's what we thought. Right. And, and I couldn't do it. And so a couple of days later, the whole world shut down and I was, you know, my family, like many of ours, I was very lucky. We could be home. We were okay. We were healthy, but also terrified and not knowing what was going to happen or how long things this was going to go on. And so I would sit and knit, which I'd done since I was you know, maybe 11, 12 years old, my mom taught me and talked to my mom who was dead for four years. I would just have these conversations with her in my head and wished so desperately, you know, all these things were kind of coming, crashing down when I stopped moving because I was traveling so much about being, you know, in later midlife, my daughter leaving home, going to college, my husband retiring, you know, all this, what was I going to do with my life? What transition was I going to make? And my dad declining, my mom dead. And I wished that I could talk to her at the age that I was, then and that she would be that age too but Mm -hmm. you know that doesn't happen so and and I had learned to knit from my mom the acronym I use is SLHFM she learned from her mom because so many people that I met so many of the women and it's very much a women's story did learn from their mothers but that was a whole set of metaphors too of like what we learn from our moms that we're happy about what we learn from our moms that we wish we hadn't you know what we Teacher, I never taught my daughter to knit. She, I had somebody else teach her because I knit in a kind of a quirky way, and I thought, Ugh, that's just gonna, that's not going to serve her. But that that became something I didn't want my daughter to learn from her mother. And you know, there's all those things too, right? That we don't want our children to learn from us, particularly our daughters. That we hand down that we want to, that we hand down that we don't mean to, that we hand down that we, you know, that we don't hand down. So that. There's a lot of those metaphors, but I was sitting there and doing that. And I had this long held fantasy that I can't really fully explain about going from sheep to sweater, learning to shear sheep and doing this whole thing to go off to sweater. And I thought, well, I'm just sitting here. Maybe this would be a time to do this and it would be really fun to write about it. So I knew that, but everything else that I wrote about, no idea. And mm. I think that that's the value in some ways of doing something that you know nothing about once in a while that you just do on a whim because you never know what it, where it's going to lead you. And all the, I mean, I never could have predicted all these things that I never could have predicted. It would have been so much about climate change that it could have been so much, maybe, you know, about creativity that it would have been so much about the planet that it would have been so much about my parents, you know, all of that. I, I couldn't have predicted that. And that makes it so fun, sort of this, the going back and forth for people who haven't read it yet between where you are in the process, which is hilarious. You're a fun writer. Like it's such a fun read. And then dropping into 
the history of indigo or labor mills or all of these different places that you brought us where you're, it's incredibly edifying. I mean, it's fascinating material. So let's start there, you know, showing up to shear <laughs> your sheep mm-hmm. and wearing what did you call it? What, what we call a fleece, which is not, and it's my little, you know, trusty made out of recycled water bottles and realizing that that was the equivalent of waving a ham and cheese sandwich on white bread at a bar mitzvah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a triumph of Orwellian marketing. Yeah. This idea close. that polyester fluff. Yeah. Call it a fleece. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking. And it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PTT. Tell us about, because this was fascinating to me, about one, the way that people have insinuated that shearing sheep is somehow inhumane or cruel when it's essential to their survival, and that to the environmental implications of how we have replaced this, how we've replaced wool, thinking sometimes that we're making a superior choice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, yes. To both of those things. I mean, that was, th- those were the things that I just didn't have. I mean, I kind of knew fast fashion was bad. Like you kind of have that sense, but not yeah. really how bad. Well, anyway, yeah. The, so people, I, it is really important to say that sheep need to be shorn. If they are not shorn, 
they'll die. They We've bred them over millennia to just keep growing. So they just get more and more. And there's been sheep found in the wilderness that have kind of gone rogue with 70 or 90 pounds of wool. And underneath they're starving to death because they can't mm. reach, you know, anything to eat. And it doesn't hurt them. It's like, they don't love it, you know, any more than your two-year-old likes to have their haircut. It's kind of like that. And except that they weigh, I mean, it was the hard, at least it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It was so hard. It was, you have to, the, the sheep weighs more than I do. It is really slippery because they're covered with lanolin, which you, you know, you know, from your, like your lip balm and stuff and they have hooves and they kick and they don't, you know, they're not excited about this thing that you're and, and you have a hot whirring blade with no safety. So the sheep was totally fine. I did, I sheared three sheep. They were, and, and I think they told me that minute for minute, it burns twice as many calories as marathon running. <laughs> and my teacher, it took her, you know, three minutes to shear a sheep. It took me an hour and a half. And there's a very <laughs> set way that you do it. And it looked like a crime scene, not because I ever hurt the sheep, but because I cut the tips of my fingers off constantly. So there was like blood everywhere. It was just, it was, it was, I was so exhausted by the time I was done and so proud that I actually got through it. But meanwhile, I was at this ranch that was doing regenerative farming, which is like one upping sustainability. It's like making the air and the land and the water better instead of just like keeping it at the way that we've degraded it. And so we were talking a lot about the impact of wool on climate and how the wool industry in this country has collapsed, partly because of offshoring, but partly because of the rise of synthetic fiber, which I never really thought that much about, but has happened in our lifetime pretty much. Like since the 60s, our clothing used to be made of natural fiber and which degrades and, you know, goes back to the earth and all of that. And now 70% of our clothing is synthetic or has, synth you know, your yoga pants, like it doesn't matter if it's high end or low end. It doesn't matter if it's H&M or it's like Lululemon. It's got synthetic, which net, which is made of plastic, it's fossil fuel. So it never decomposes, just goes into landfill. And even if you're recycling those water bottles, that's still going to go into landfill eventually. And until it does, it's shedding. This is so depressing. It's shedding hundreds of thousands of these little invisible things called microfibers that are the biggest threat to the ocean now and or one of the biggest threats. And I kind of compare it to, again, with the Jewish metaphor that when I was a kid, we used to, in Minneapolis, we used to throw our sins into the lake every Rosh Hashanah, New Year, you know, throw your sins, start over. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine this like tarry mass at the bottom of this lake that my congregation had been throwing sins into for a hundred years. Microfibers are like that, but real. They, yeah. they are, they're, they're destroying the ocean and water life. And it, part of me, I mean, I'm already, you know, recycling and driving a Prius and composting. And because I live in California, I don't flush if it's only pee and like all these different things. And to then be confronted with what my clothing was doing, I just wanted to like, you know, take to my eco-certified bed. I just wanted to buy a damn pair of pants. But one of the things I talk about and I wrote a piece for the Times about New York Times about this after the book came out is that those of us who do handwork, particularly, I mean, all of us, but those, you know, I, and I ask why we don't think about our clothing the way we think about our food, because we're so conscious, right, of sustainability mm -hmm. and ethics and labor and all this with our food. We don't think about it very much with our clothing. And those of us who, who have had the experience of making um, and, and value our fiber and our materials and know what it takes to really create a garment are kind of ideally situated to be on the forefront of pushing for better policies, laws, regulation of the fashion industry so that they can be compelled to change their really horrific ways, both in terms of the planet and in terms of labor. 
Yeah. No, I thought the book was a great service in that way. I mean, this is not a story that we're told or that I think any of us really know. You know, I'm a Montana kid. I own a ton of quote unquote Patagonia fleece. And in my mind, I reckon, I mean, I've, I've followed sort of the need for things in the to catcher, micro fleece and washing machines, etc. But in my mind, I always thought, oh, it must ultimately be better to not be making clothing from animals and then to sort oh, of no. read the book and be like, oh, yeah. my God, I have had this completely wrong. No, no, it's not better. I, I mean, it's better. I, certainly buying a recycled water bottle. I mean, I don't want to. I think Patagonia is trying to do such fantastic work. I don't right. want to you know, insult Patagonia, they keep moving forward and, and trying new things as they realize what does and doesn't make a difference in trying to get closed loop production and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, sheep are not only do they make fiber that keeps us warm, keeps us cool, does all this stuff, but they, they are also great for fire mitigation and all kinds of, I mean, they can do a lot in terms of climate justice. And we have this kind of wrongheaded idea that yeah, that using animal fiber is somehow less good. It's it's really more good. It's really, I mean, done right. It's it's yeah, it's great. I always wonder too some some of what's happening and and is this, which is understandable and it's highly highly nuanced, but is almost this extreme guilt and fear of harming the environment, and so the instinct in some ways is to turn away from it. Yeah, and sort of disavow its existence, I think, in a way that we're not always conscious of rather than leaning into it and then sort of sifting here. Because what's interesting, not to go on a total tangent, but I work with a, a, a biotech company in the beauty space and that work is really interesting because their point, what they're offering is, you know, they take they take a molecule, let's call it rose oil, and then they ferment it. They grow it like beer. They identify the molecule that's that's wanted, and then they grow it. And it is actually significantly more sustainable than growing a bunch of roses and extracting rose oil. Mm -hmm. And because right now within the beauty industry, there's this like desire for quote unquote natural, you know, but there's so much waste and there's so much petroleum, et cetera, a whole nother story. But in that sense, it's like, okay, let's actually, we need to move away from our dependence on plants that are water intensive and land intensive and figure out how to be a lot more specific in the way that we're cultivating. It is really interesting. Yeah. And that's what's so, like supply chains in general are so nuanced. Yeah. And I think that sometimes instead of leaning into the complexity we get just like, oh my God, I can't engage. I don't want to take anything from the planet. Yeah. Rather than recognizing what we were talking about at the beginning, which is our intense connection to being of the planet. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I get it. I mean, I ping pong all the time. And I did feel like I went through a period when I first started learning about the extent of the kind of catastrophic damage that the fashion industry does, where I could not go into a store. I mean, any kind yeah. of store, not even like just clothing. I would just go in and all I would see was landfill and things that, you know, pl plastic, plastic particularly. I would just, I just couldn't, it, it it overwhelmed me. And you have to kind of work your way back to figuring out how you want to live, how you can live and also where you can, you know, join with others. So for me, one of the things that this book 
really, it really affected my consumption. I have to say that I buy so I buy far fewer items of clothing now, far fewer, mm-hmm. and I keep them longer and I try to pay more attention to what they're made of. And while I can't say I don't buy synthetics anymore, I try to really minimize it and realize that, you know, this is not how we used to live. This is a new thing. You know, fast fashion, one of the things it did was accelerate our buying habits. You know, we used to buy clothes a couple of times a year, probably when Mm -hmm. you were a kid, you bought clothes a couple of times a year. And now people buy, you know, clothes every week and wear them once and throw them away. And, and I realized like with social media, this is also kind of a tangent, but that had kind of changed my clothing habits because it used to be when I would like go on a book tour, I had my book tour outfit and I would wear my book tour outfit. People were not taking pictures of me and putting them online, or I was not mm-hmm. taking pictures of myself. So I did not appear to wear the same thing every single day. <laughs> and Hold I started on. seeing pictures of myself, you know, online on one of my book tours. I think I can't, it might've been girls and sex where I thought, oh, dang, people are putting pictures of me up and I'm wearing the same thing all the time. I got to buy more clothes and I can't wear the, you know, and I have to mix it. And then with this one, I thought, you know what? No, I don't. I can wear the same two things all the time. That's what I'm going to do because now that's actually going to be makes different kind of statement, but it makes me uncomfortable. Makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. You will see, I'm almost always wearing either a purple and black shirt or a blue sweater. If you look at me for anything having to do with unraveling, but I just thought I'm not, that's what I'm going to wear. That's it. Yeah. As many pictures of me up as you want. I don't think you're alone. I mean, I, at the beginning of COVID and being trapped in my house with all of my stuff, and I have a small house, and I've always been somewhat aware of the energy of the things that I am collecting and surrounding myself with. And I'm pleased to say it's primarily books, like I'm a book hoarder, and I'm okay with that. But I sort of had a a dawning realization of how much clothing I had been buying Mm -hmm. And just stopped. I just went shopping with a friend for my book, for needing stuff for for a book tour. And I bought a pair of pants. Like we went all over town. I bought one nice pair of pants. Mm -hmm. But I really haven't bought any clothing in a few years. Yeah. Part because I have a lot of nice things. I don't. I that but that compulsion to sort of keep going. I recognize was just in my mind. I had been programmed. Yeah. Or and to find it a source of, you know, of self-care or a source of bonding. Therapy. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's one big thing with, with my with my daughter, who's 19 now, was that, you know, I sort of saw shopping as a bonding experience. And I thought, well, if we don't do that, what else could we do? You know, like, yeah. now we take hikes. It, it was sort of this, like, cultural idea of, quote, unquote, sort of what's fun. And I there was this moment, I mean, you talked about it. And I remember as a 20-something New Yorker working at a magazine, this was the rise of H&M, the rise of fast fashion. And in high school, college, it's like I would order once once or twice a year, as you said, like some things from J. Crew. Right. We didn't have a gap. But if I went, traveled someplace where there was a gap, I'd get a few things from the gap. And that was it. It was exciting. Esprit, Benetton, mm-hmm. like those were the brands of my childhood. And then that switch somehow where affluence for me felt like it was represented in my closet mm-hmm. and non-repetitive outfits and this need to be, I mean, I worked in fashion, in magazines at Connie Nass, so this like the siren song of being quote unquote on trend. Yeah. And I have a lot of shame thinking about what my closet looked like then. And 
this idea, and I think most people recognize this. It took me a few years before I was like, no one wants this. Nobody wants my old Zara. And it smells. It, you know, it, you can't wear those fabrics. Yeah. Without, even, even with clinical strength deodorant. That's the other thing is I was like, oh, my God, my like, I'm like ramping up my deodorant because this <laughs> smells so bad, you know, by it's five o'clock. Yeah. 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 So then it goes to the global south because it's dumped in mountains and it's called dead white men's clothes. Dead white men's clothes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I went, I spent a, a summer in Kenya in college. And yeah, that was another revelation of like, oh my God, nobody wants our stuff. Nobody yeah. wants our stuff. Wants this is stuff. not wanted. So mm -mm. this idea of like, I'll give it another life. Yeah. No. Yeah. We are just polluting other people's countries with I our know. crap. Now, see, now I'm depressed again. But yeah, I mean. <laughs> no, it's okay. It I think so. people and know this. It's I think been really great to me. And I think because, you know, I think if you, I, and I, I kind of want to be clear about it, that I, I do write it with both, as I always try to, as being a fellow traveler, like I don't have the answers. I don't know what to do. I'm just a girl, you know, who is like walking through this with all the, with everybody else. And also with like, with the humor and stuff, because if it's not, I feel like if you write a book about this and you're just saying, oh my God, this sucks, you know, it overwhelms people. And what I, what I really wanted to do was write something that if I was going to write about that, because it was hard not to just go down and start going like, oh my God, we must stop, you know, but to, to find a way to talk about it that also is kind of funny and also, you know, makes you, is clear that like, I'm as overwhelmed as anybody, you know, by it mm -hmm. and don't know what to do. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge to have them framed right. I've been having Framebridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But Framebridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus Framebridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you. In days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. 
Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why FrameBridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit FrameBridge.com or a local FrameBridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's FrameBridge.com. I didn't find the book depressing. I didn't find it overwhelming. I found it clarifying. I found it really helpful. And also like there's something, and, and again, going back to this idea of threads and weaving and there's something about sheep too, bringing us back to sheep. And you talk about Jason and the Argonauts and you talk about, you can think about the Bible and, and the importance of shepherds and sheep. There's something about the metaphor, the metaphors of which there are so many in this book that's, it feels like it's gently guiding us back. And you're on this journey with us, as you mentioned, and this idea, and we'll get into women and crafting and aging, but it feels like a, you're reminding us, or we're all coming back into this, like, oh, right, there's a lineage, there's a connection here. Yeah. There's a long lineage and metaphor, because this is important. And we need to come back, come back yeah. to this. Yeah, yeah. And sheep are cute. But yeah, the I mean, the women, the aspect with women spinning was, was I mean, all, all through also, but spinning, women spent so much time in the ancient world spinning, like they spent all their time, any spare moment. And spinsters were not a bad, it wasn't bad to be a spinster, the way we think mm-hmm. of it. Spinsters were, you know, respected members of households, single women who didn't have the responsibilities of husbands or children could spin more and make money. And, you know, you think about things like the Vikings marauding around, you know, when they sailed the across the Atlantic and their little hats and everything, but you don't think about the sails. You don't think like who made those sails, who made the thread that made all those sails? Who do you think did that? How many years did it take those women to make one lousy sail? You know, I mean, it took, it took like two years to make of, of women's labor to make a sail. So the, the kind of invisible labor of women and all of that. And then the, you know, kind of the, the more the way the ways that they were credited, the three fates of of Greek of ancient Greece are women. They come to you when they're when when you're born. The first one is the maiden, and she measures out your life, um, spins the filament of your life, or she spins it, and then the the matron measures it, and then the crone cuts it off when you're going to die. And so it's this the lifespan of women, but it's also the creation of humanity through spinning. And spinning and weaving are so integral to creation. I mean, it makes total sense to me. Like, mm-hmm. So much more sense than our Judeo-Christian tradition where there's some like dude in the sky creating things, that it would be women, because women are the creators. You know, we women they they make something from nothing all the time, whether it's thread from fiber or bread from flour or you know, human beings from nowhere at all. It just what could be more divine? So mm-hmm. like looking at the ways that women spinning and, and weaving and less so knitting, but mostly spinning and weaving were the basis of creation myths all around the world and how that aspect of women's labor came forward. And then the the kind of more overt politics that we don't hear about whether, I mean, I, I, I didn't know this. I think this is more known, but that, and this is a man, of course, but Gandhi spun every day for an hour at four in the morning, usually, and encouraged all Indians to do the same. It was fundamental to his push for self-rule because the British had destroyed the 
fiber industry there. That was one of the main, they needed, they needed cotton for the industrial revolution for their mills. And so they, you know, tens of millions of Indians had died because of what the British had done with fiber. And, and Gandhi wanted to put a spinning wheel in the middle of the Indian flag when they finally went into, they didn't, they put a Dharma wheel, but that was his idea. And women in the American revolution, similarly, the British had, you know, decimated the fiber and cloth industry for their mills. And we learned about the Boston Tea Party, right? But we don't learn about women's boycott of British made cloth for homespun and these public spinning bees they would have in the cent- in the town squares, which were just as important in terms of sparking the American Revolution. And all through history, you see that that women used fiber and fiber work as political voice for dissidents and for patriotism. And even now, you know, knitters are constantly, I just was, I wrote something about this for the New York Times and somebody wrote to me and said, you know, the weekend that you published that, this group of women had made this crocheted piece that was like the size of my house, you know, like a two-story thing. And they and it had Lady Liberty on it, except it was bright pink with Lady Liberty, except that her torch was a uterus. And mm. it was in support of reproductive rights. And they went and unfurled it in the New York State Legislature. And they've been mm. taking this thing around the country. So, I mean, even now, there's all these ways that women are using their fiber arts for political voice. It's incredible. Well, and it's such a beautiful, you write about this sort of this idea of like, oh, old ladies crafting, right? And then how radical, not only how essential it's been to statehood and empire throughout time, often being sort of the driver of the economy, the just driver of of seafaring and voyaging, like essential yeah. for for how we've moved around the world. It feels subversive now. You know, you yeah. talk about sort of the the pussy hats and, and women knitting post-Trump, but it's been like that forever. You even think mm-hmm. about the AIDS quilt, right? Like this idea of women's handiwork, which is deprecated. Of course it is. <laughs> yes. And then right. assigned to old ladies and yeah. made on quote unquote uncool. And yet this is a thread, pun intended, that has united women across millennia. Yeah. I mean, when you say that, you know, I, I would say to women, to people, you know, that handwork has always been really political and they look at me kind of blankly and I'd say, okay, what's the first thing women did as an act of dissent when Trump was elected? And usually people say, well, they marched. And I go, nah, no, they didn't. They knit, they knit those hats. And no matter how you feel about those hats, A, they were a very powerful statement, but B, there is a long and venerable history of women using our handwork to have a voice. And it, and it's a beautiful yeah. thing. And also, you know, there's the voice and there's also all the other things. Like I, I get so many stories with this book of these beautiful ways that, that people use handwork for joy and connection and to express love and the ways that our, our memories get knit into or woven into the things that we make. My As we were just talking just this second, like two seconds ago, my husband just texted me. It went across my screen. He uh, texted me a quilt from Heart Mountain internment camp in Wyoming. Mm. There's a collection of quilts that women made while they were imprisoned there. So, I mean, it's mm. just it, the the kind of depth and breadth and meaning and, and the ways that it just gets dismissed both marginalizes something that, you know, A, little old ladies do, and B, so what if that were true? Yes, like it happens, exactly. it's not true. It happens that all kinds of people do handwork and all kinds, you know, every gender, every age, every race. But 
what if it were just a bunch of little old ladies? What would be wrong with that? Why do we think that that's such a bad, negative, repellent thing? That too is something to examine. No, and I think that there's something about it. I know how to knit, but I'm not, I'm not, I, I learned at school, but I'm not a good knitter, but I embroider and I pull it out and people think it's odd. And I'm like, I, I didn't learn from my mother. I learned, I taught myself. I only know one stitch, but I, what I do is I embroider pictures mm-hmm. and as a way in some ways of picking, because it takes me years to do one of what's important. Like, what are these memories that I'm trying to like really encode or what, what is worthy of this, this much labor, but there's something I think about that with myself, not something that I was taught, not something that it was passed down. But there's a pull there. I think that there's a pull, I think that we could all recognize this need to make things that are useful or not with our hands. Yeah. I mean, that's what everybody did during lockdown, right? I mean, that was one of the reasons that I thought of doing this as a book was that all of a sudden everybody was baking sourdough and making Harry Styles sweater and doing all these things with their hands that they, A, never had time for, but B, it was because it is really therapeutic and meaningful and valuable. And we just get so far away from that in, in our current society. And, and even the ways that, you know, I mean, there's like a magic, I talk a lot about magic, but during the pandemic, this isn't in the book, but I I made this blanket and it was a really hard blanket. It was a really complicated stitch. And when I finished it, I didn't want it. Like it just reminded me of that year and it made me upset. And, but then I gave it to a girlfriend and by giving it away, I transformed it and it became an act of love. And she wraps herself in it. She just said, told me that her son was having a bad day and he just, she calls it blanket. She said he just wrapped himself in blanket and put it just over his head until he felt mm. better because it had transformed from this thing that gave me pain into something that gave somebody else joy and reminded them that they were loved and that somebody had given them this gift that they had made themselves So there's just like so much that's amazing about doing that sort of work. Again, let's, you know, to talk about, you write, I think it is precisely knitting's benign reputation that allows its practitioners to subvert the very conventions we peer to uphold. After all, the proverbial, quote unquote, little old lady could well be an unrepentant cackler, a fearsome crone. Her innocuousness could be her superpower, allowing her to slip the bonds of feminine constraint. Craft also evokes the witch in us, the secret lore passed from mother to daughter, ancient sources of authority, of authenticity, so dangerous they could get women burned at the stake. And and it's happening. I don't want to suggest that it's not. But this like this idea of old ladies, witches, crones with their crafts and the way I think we've been dis- dislocated from that as an enviable or a desirable vision to realize in ourselves and how yeah. much we need to, like how much we need to let that, let that be us. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, it's, it's hard. I was just talking to a friend the other day about, as I think myself, as I'm getting older and as I'm thinking about what it means to be an older woman, not just middle-aged, but like heading towards like senior citizenness and how we think about that personally and as a culture you kind of have to confront your own internalized revulsion is maybe too strong, but like, you know, desire not to ever be that and fear of that and anxiety about that and ways that we've learned to 
you know, be disgusted, disgust, I guess that's a better word. Kind of like the way that we feel about, you know, fatness or, Mm -hmm. or any of these other things that we're taught that are not, if we aren't towing a very narrow line as a woman, we're useless and marginalized. Age is kind of the big kahuna of that. Yep. But it is cultural programming. That's what I think is so interesting. Like at the very beginning, you're talking about, you write, when someone wrote in the New York Times that while she was turning 60, she still felt 20. I thought, yes, I know. Turning 60, I feel 60. And I think that that's the truth. I think that there's sort of this veneer, and I'm I'm not turning 60, but there's this instinct in us that to be like, oh, I want to be 20. And now I'm like, oh, God, I would hate to be 20. I'd hate it. I don't want to be in my 30s either. And I feel like we've been conditioned to believe that we all want to be young and to look young. And I think it's actually like a, a horrible myth. And I'm not saying that it doesn't sort of hold some women by the neck. It does, certainly. But I don't, I think when we actually dig a little deeper, it's like, no, I wouldn't want to be that at all. I'm so happy to be here. And I'm yes. looking forward to getting older. Yes, to, to to a point, and then it gets scary again. You know, I mean, I don't know. It's I, I, this is to me, this is the thing that I really want to start thinking about and reckoning with. So, wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, Becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started, so it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug, like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets, they also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. Can you distinguish sort of with your fear the way, yes, we have an aging crisis in this country. We have a, it is 
it is coming, right? For for baby boomers, et cetera. We are not set up for this. We don't have caretaking in place yeah. for this. You mean that versus just the if, Can if you those things that? were in place? Yeah. If I separate the, that from just getting older, that's the getting older part is not a problem. But you know, I mean, it 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 is scary to think about being infirm or or getting dementia. You know, watching my parents. I think I write in the book about my parents. I didn't realize I was going to write so much about my dad. So I wrote about my mom, obviously, who who had died already and had gone through a lot before she died. My dad at that point was ninety four and had dementia and during lo- and I didn't know if I was ever going to see him again because it was lockdown mm-hmm. and nobody was going in or out and I couldn't go. He was in Minneapolis and. Even my brothers who lived there, they didn't know if they were going to see him again because you couldn't. So, mm-hmm. and one of the things that was really amazing for me, just a huge gift of doing this book and, and going through this process was it just slows you down. You know, I mean, you have to slow to card fleece, which you do with like two things that look like dog brushes. And you just put a little teeny piece on and go back and forth and back and forth until it's like nice and fluffy. And then you roll it up and put it aside and you have to do that 579 of those I read to make a sweater. It took me 10 minutes to do one. So mm-hmm. that's going to be a while. And I would sit there and it was boring. So boring. And I would sit there with my dad on FaceTime and, you know, he could go in and out and he could, you know, sometimes he thought I was actually there in the room with him. And sometimes he thought the twins were winning on the rerun of the game that he was watching because of something he was doing with his walker. And we would sing because that part of your brain degrades later than, you know, with dementia than other parts of lyrics, you retain lyrics for a long time. And we sang a lot. And I feel like in normal life, when I was running around, getting on planes, doing this and that, taking care of my daughter, you know, doing whatever, it was really easy, even if, if, despite my sort of best intentions, I would say, I'm going to call him every day. I'm going to call him every day. But then I would think, ah, oh, well, it's getting late or, you know, whatever. but, but really beneath that was, it was really hard to talk to somebody who had dementia and couldn't hear. And it was really painful to expose yourself to it, but sitting there with him every day like that, I could just be, and just yeah. like, let it flow. And, oh my gosh, now that he is, he died last August and I just feel like those weeks together were some of the greatest gift of our life together. So I'm really grateful. Well, you think about that too. You think about this idea or this image of women circling, crafting together in circles, right? And sort of doing their handiwork and quote unquote, sort of like idly chit-chatting. And you think about the loss of that culturally. And, you know, I have a friend who leads women's circles this isn't a new thing. This again is an ancient thing, but this idea of like handcraft and which to me always puts me in a almost like a meditative state yes. to be occupied in that way. And then it to does. be in conversation or with each other without driving a conversation, but to just let it happen feels healing and essential to what it is to be a woman. And I also just have to wonder, being separated from that, separated from each other, what's been lost and what can come back when we, if we were to convene and do this again? Yeah. I mean, that's where fairy tales come from. They, they mm-hmm. you know, the, the fairy tales, the the Grimm's and Peralt and those men, they kind of went around and listened to women and wrote down what they were saying, but those fairy tales, and that's why there's so much spinning involved in fairy tales. Women were sitting there, there was no internet, and what could they do? They told stories to one another. I think book groups, you know, 
that I think that's one of the reasons that people like book groups or walking groups and there's knitting groups too. I mean, people, I think that women have always convened and, and joined, whether it was, you know, they're spinning or they're having a coven or whatever the heck they're doing. And that we, that we still do, that we need it, that we need that support and, you know, m- new moms groups, you know, all these men don't really do that so much. Yeah. And it's I mean, showing up. I guess they have sports, them. they have sports, but so do we. I, I mean, I know so many women who, myself included, would say that, you know, of course our friends are essential to our mental health, essential. But then we, then our husband's like, don't have very many friends. You know, like my, they just don't, they, like I remember my dad would always say, well, what do I need friends for? I have your mom. And I think, well, mm. <laughs> maybe mom yeah. doesn't carry that whole weight and also friends, you know? But I feel like that's true of a lot of, even in our generation too, of, of a lot of men I know as they get older. Yeah. It's showing up in the mental health of men. Yeah. It's a, it's a real crisis, certainly. And the sort of lacking the cultural standard or the means to, to convene. And, and it's funny, it's like they should all take up knitting because there's something about it being with someone not having to maintain constant eye contact, being able to just be present without being able to be quiet with each other too. That's such an invitation to intimacy without, I don't know, there have to be sort of ways. And I I feel like trying to remember there's a, I think he's a British doctor who was, who's trying to combat loneliness in the UK. And I think that he would get people together, older people primarily, and, you know, give them a community garden to manage, Mm. work shed with tools, and people would just come and they'd have something to quote unquote do mm-hmm. and fall into relationship with each other. We need that, I think. Yeah. It needs to be an intervention. Unraveling Peggy's latest book does hold so much depth and it's such a, it's a beautiful memoir just as it is that as you start to pull it apart, you see our origin stories, what it is to be a woman, what's happened to us over time. And there's fascinating history interwoven with hilarious stories about <laughs> shearing sheep and hand dyeing and this experiment that she went on over the course of the pandemic. And I can't, I feel like Peggy's really onto something essential, something that's supposed to be a primary metaphor in our life. And I can't wait to actually see where she takes it. She writes, it makes sense to me that the designers of life would be female rather than male, as in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And it seems especially appropriate that those goddesses would spin Making something from nothing is the quintessential magic of women, whether turning fiber to thread or flour to bread or engaging in the ultimate creative act, conjuring new humans from nowhere at all. What could be more elemental, more mystical, more divine than that? I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack newsletter. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive on Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen. 
Meanwhile, if you haven't already, please pre-order my book coming May 23rd. It's called On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, and it's an exploration of the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available for now, for free, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout-out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Doval for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at LLS dot org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash students.